You're listening to Nutrition Matters Podcast with Paige Smathers, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Hey everyone, it's Paige, your favorite nutrition podcaster and dietitian. Nutrition Matters Podcast explores what really matters in nutrition and health with a sensitive and realistic approach. This podcast relies on the support of listeners like you and needs donations to keep this project running. To help support the podcast, please consider making a donation at pagesmathersrd.com slash podcast. If you find this episode interesting, engaging, or helpful in your life, please consider donating, sharing with friends and family, and leaving a review on iTunes. You can leave a review about this podcast straight from your podcast app, search Nutrition Matters Podcast, click reviews, and then write a review. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Paige Smathers RD if you'd like to have a little more food for thought. Thank you for listening. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Nutrition Matters Podcast. My name is Paige Smathers, and I'm excited to bring you my monthly kind of series that I'm doing where I'm bringing you some of my older episodes that I've just loved that have been amazing episodes. I'm republishing one of those every single month, and today I'm bringing you one of those um, about food addiction with my friend Marcy Evans, who's a fantastic dietitian. I'm a huge, huge fan of hers, and I just respect her so much, and I love, I love her approach, and I love how she explains things. You're gonna, you're gonna love this episode. So, most of you will already know Marcy. Marcy has come on the podcast a few times at this point. Uh, the, the most recent time she's appeared on the podcast was in our conversation where we talked about gut health and elimination diets. So that was episode 81, and you're welcome to refer back to that if you're at all interested in in that topic. That was one of the most buzzworthy episodes I've done so far that generated a lot of of talk and a lot of sharing and that one has been downloaded a lot and I I really, really enjoyed that one. So this episode is great too. We talk about food addiction. We talk about the theories and the science and uh, why this is a controversial topic and on a practical level, how you might want to approach this in your own life. And I want to always make sure that everybody knows about some resources. The first is my online uh, Facebook group for the podcast. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We, we share a lot of aha moments and realizations, and there's a lot of good discussion in there. So if you want to join us, that's Nutrition Matters Podcast Community in Facebook. You're also welcome to follow me on Facebook at Paige Smathers RD or Instagram I know I mentioned that in the intro and outro, but I do want to encourage you to join me there just to be able to continue to stay in the loop about announcements and uh, blog posts and podcast episodes as well. And then as always, if you like what we talk about in this podcast and you'd like to see how to kind of make this happen in real life and how to take things a little bit further and get into this work, um, you're welcome to check out my online course to see if that might be a good fit for you. You can find more info at pagesmathersrd.com slash course. And then last but not least, I do want to make sure that you have uh, the ability to check out my workshop that I'm doing um, in the spring with Noah Rochetta in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, this will be um, 
You'll be able to find more details about this all-day all workshop on my website at pagesmathersrd.com slash workshop. Check it out. See if it might be a good fit for you. If you've, if you've wanted to dive into the concept of mindfulness or if you have already done your own kind of work in that arena, but you want to know how to apply that to your relationship with food or your body, that's exactly what we're going to be doing in the workshop. I'm so excited and I'm so... <clears throat> Um, grateful for those who have already signed up and also excited to be able to share this with people in person, really meet, meet you, engage with you and, um, and just have a really fun time diving into this great concept of mindful eating. All right. So with that, I think that's all the announcements I wanted to make. And with this conversation about Food addiction, I think this is really applicable this time of year where um, if you're listening to this as it's getting published, this is the holiday season. This is when we tend to kind of get uh, get into some of these cycles in, in real depth and we really can feel like, you know, at this point of the year, we can just feel like, gosh, I have such a problem. I need a change. You're starting to maybe gear up for um, the new year, maybe thinking about resolutions and you might be even telling yourself, Yep, I am definitely addicted to food. I have some. I have some real problems, um, and even if you aren't feeling that way about yourself, I'd really encourage you to dive into this episode because I think that this is going to give you an interesting perspective on how to navigate that question and how to navigate that thought that kind kind of comes up saying that you're addicted to food. I, I want to definitely encourage you to be a critical consumer of the media and this is one of those topics that comes up that uh, that does require some kind of digging a little bit deeper than the headlines. So Marcy and I take that on in the in this episode and I really hope you enjoy it. I hope it is a helpful resource as you are perhaps navigating a tricky food time this time of year. All right with that enjoy the episode and thanks again for joining me. Marcy Evans, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Paige. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, you have so much wisdom to share with us, and I just, I know people are going to be very interested in this topic. So let's go ahead and introduce what we're going to talk about just to kind of make sure everybody stays tuned, and then we'll we'll get into kind of learning about you and then getting onto that topic. So what we're talking about today is food addiction factor fiction. So we're trying to really dive into the research and then also just practical life of what does it mean to, to be addicted to food or is that real or is that not? And so I know that that's a term that just kind of gets thrown around kind of pretty casually these days. And I think it's useful to, to dive in and really figure out what it all means and, and if it's helpful for us. So Everybody stay tuned and let's get to know Marcy a little bit and then we'll get to that topic. So Marcy, tell us just a little bit about you and what what you're excited about and what you're into maybe outside of the world of nutrition because I know <laughs> that takes up a lot of your time, but but what else what else can you tell us about you? Yeah, well, aside from my uh, my professional pursuits, I really love to travel. 
So travel is something that is always on my mind. Like I always have a trip in my mind. Like where am I going to go next? Like where else do I want to venture off to? So that is something that always gets my juices going. And I'm one of the reasons why I love being in private practice is that I do have a fair degree of flexibility in terms of my schedule. So always try to think about how I can fit travel in internationally as well as stateside. You know, I grew up in Arizona. My whole family's in Arizona. I live in the Boston area. So um, when I'm not visiting my nephews and my niece and my family, you know, I'm usually I'm usually going somewhere fun. I've been to Iceland last year. I did a, a big hiking trip in Europe the year before that. I'm planning a, a trip to uh, Quebec City in a month or so. So that's one of the things that I have a ton of fun with. And then um, I also love to ride my bike. And it's finally getting warm enough here in Boston to do that. And I love to read. You know, in my fantasy world, somebody would be, um, you know, paying for my sabbatical so I could just curl up and read, read, read. So those are the things that that I really love to do. It's funny. I feel like most dietitians say, I love to cook. And it's not that I, I hate cooking, but I'm not someone who loves to be in the kitchen, you know, experimenting. I like to kind of get in and get out of there. So um, I love to eat really good food, but I don't spend a lot of time um, doing culinary stuff on my own. Do you ever feel like you talk about food and think about food and work with people on food so much of your life that kind of in your personal life, you're a little bit over it at that point? (laughs) You know, that may be part of it. You know, for me, I've spent all day long talking about food and I love my job. I don't get tired of talking about it with people. But when I come home with the short couple of hours that I have to spend, there are just things that I love so much more that I'd rather do. You know, I'd rather get on my bike. I'd rather read my book. Um, then, you know, spend time experimenting in the kitchen, you know, maybe I I need a a little food break. (laughs) No, I, you know, I, I often say that I just kind of get a little bit sick of food after talking about it all day. So, um, yeah, well, that's cool. That's great to get to know you. So tell us kind of how you decided to become a dietitian and what that path was like for you. Oh, sure. So I was really fortunate. I felt like I was one of the few high school students who went into college having some direction. And it actually goes back to my uncle. I was uh, spending some time uh, with some family. And my uncle said, so Marcy, you know, you're getting ready to go to college. What do you think you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm really interested in science and I want to work with people. Um, But, you know, I was thinking maybe I wanted to be an occupational therapist or a nurse or, you know, but I had all these reasons why I didn't think those things were a good fit for me. And he said, well, you know, Marcy, um, I know you're interested in health. You know, have you ever thought about becoming a dietitian? And I said, well, I have no idea what that is. And he said, well, I have type one diabetes and I meet with a dietitian and here's how she helps me out. And I was so intrigued by this that when I went home, I actually drove, this is going to date me. I went to the public library and checked out a book (laughs) on, on registered dietitians and um, read through that book and I thought, oh my gosh, this is so cool because I get to blend together health, science, and helping people. This is perfect. So when I started in my freshman year um, of college, I was pretty directed and um, you know got my degree in nutrition and dietetics and then went on to do my dietetic internship and um, it started to kind of wonder if I had pursued the right path because I was going through all of these rotations and I thought, well, that's interesting, but I don't think that's what I want to do. I sort of imagine myself to be maybe a clinical dietitian or, you know, maybe a community dietitian. And I really wasn't loving my rotations. And it wasn't until I did a rotation at a residential treatment facility 
that I, um, for, for treating eating disorders that I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is what I want to do. This is what makes me excited. I just found that it seemed challenging, but also rewarding. And I love that it was multidisciplinary, that I really got to collaborate, um, with other members of the treatment team, the doctors and psychiatrists and, um, therapists. And it really felt like the dietitian was really sort of an important member of the treatment team. So that's where I got my first little taste of, of working in the eating disorders field and, and, and really directed um, the, the future of my career. Awesome. Yay. So I kind of relate to that. It is kind of sometimes you're in the middle of your food service rotation and you're like, oh, yeah, I, this is not <laughs> what I yeah. thought it would be. Yeah. So it's fun to kind of find your, find your space and find where you feel like you fit in. So um, tell us about your practice and what you do and um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So that's right in the middle of Let's see. I don't know. I'm from the West Coast. So is that where Harvard is? I feel like is that where Harvard is? Yeah. Okay. All right. Got it. I live and work in Harvard Square. So well done. You nailed it. Okay. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I know I'm I'm originally from the West Coast and and the Northeast feels like a whole world away. Yeah. so, you know, I kind of had my own unique circuitous path getting to where I am now. I ended up moving to Boston and doing a master's degree where I blended together um, nutrition counseling for eating disorders and also business entrepreneurship and ended up opening up my own private practice. And I've had several dietitians work for me and I have a couple of fantastic people who do admin and billing work for me. And um, it's a specialized practice where we predominantly uh, treat people who are in recovery from an eating disorder and and genuinely working with people who are wanting to develop a healthy relationship with food, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally. So we kind of try to take all of those pieces together. And um, the majority of my time is spent counseling people. So I see a lot of clients in the course of my week and um, also run the practice. And then I also do some consultation for other dietitians. Either I supervise them clinically or do consultations with dietitians who are looking to go into private practice or expand their private practice. And I love that. Um, I'm really passionate about teaching dietitians how to counsel people with eating disorders. So I'm about to launch this five-part online training for dietitians and dietetic students on how to counsel people with eating disorders that I'm excited about. And then oh, the that's last awesome. My, yeah, <laughs> that's very it's been a long time coming and I've, I've had a lot of technical difficulties along the way and I'm, I'm in the final stretch. It's, it's going to be out soon. So keep, keep your eyes and ears peeled. I will. And, um, the other stuff that I do um, professionally is I, I'm an adjunct professor at Northeastern University, which is in Boston, and the course I teach is actually on financing nutrition, and um, it's a really, really cool course. This is my second year teaching it, and then I also teach for a university in New Hampshire, and they have what's called their Eating Disorder Institute. It's a specialized program for clinicians who want to learn how to treat people with eating disorders, and I teach the nutrition counseling course. Um, obviously, and teach that twice a year. And I've been doing that for, I think, about five years and love, love, love um, teaching grad students. And um, and then just for the fun on the side, I, I used to do more fitness-related stuff, and I teach a couple of group fitness classes. Um, and so that's just kind of helps me keep a little balance in my life since I'm in my head so much of the day. It's, it's good for me to be in my body a little bit. Yeah. Cool. So Anything else you would add to help us get to know you better? Or do you want to just dive right into this topic we have today? 
Well, you know, in terms of getting to know me, I'm not, you know, sure exactly um, if your listeners would be familiar with um, any of these terms, but I'll just kind of throw them out. My orientation and my training, I guess my background as a dietitian is in intuitive eating. So I've done several trainings with Evelyn Triboli. She's the co-author of the book Intuitive Eating. And um, so that's a lens that I really work from. And I also work from the lens of the health at every size movement. The idea is that I really approach health from a weight neutral standpoint and really look at health behaviors as the things that we have real autonomy over and um, are those are the things that we really have the ability to change and those are the real predictors of health. So those are just maybe some some tidbits that might be helpful for uh, your listeners to know or, or maybe do a little bit of reading about if they're interested in Sure. And if they've been listening, they will know the meaning of those, both of those terms. But yes, that's great. If this is their first time listening, great. maybe maybe they'll have to research it a little bit. Excellent. Well, awesome. Okay, so let's, let's just, I just want to hear kind of your initial reaction to the word, to the term food addiction. What do you just, in general, like, what is that, what emotions does that kind of ignite within you? Yeah. If I'm if I'm honest, the the term food addiction, when I hear that term, I just sort of kind of pull back a little bit, a little bit of sort of like, ooh, um, I, I feel so hesitant around that term because it's a term that is means different things to different people. I think it's a very loaded term, and I think it's a term that can feel like it has kind of a lot of power behind it. So it's a term that when I hear it, I think, ooh, let's be careful with that term. And what exactly do you mean by that? Yes. Um, because um, as we'll talk about today, it's it's not something that's actually well-defined, even though it's a term that's really been used um, pretty freely, freely the past couple of years. Definitely. I hear it all the time. I'm just addicted. That's That's kind of... You know, I'm addicted to food. That's my problem. I'm, I'm here because yep. I'm addicted to food. Yep. I'm addicted to sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm a food addict. And I think that uh, when we hear uh, clients use that term, it's usually they're in this sort of exasperated, hopeless, really fearful, low place. Right. Right. And, and okay, I guess we'll get into it. I'm getting ahead of myself here. So let's, let's just, I know you did a really in-depth, analysis of the research in one of your blog posts, which is kind of what we're pulling a lot of this conversation from today. And so I, I want to just kind of run through that. And if you don't mind just kind of starting into that, and then as I have questions or clarification, maybe I'll just kind of ask, but let's just kind of hear your thoughts about it kind of specifically. And yeah, and then I'll just chime in when I need to. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. And yeah, please interrupt me at any time if okay. you want to <laughs> To talk back and forth about something that sure. I mentioned, um, or you have a question or, or anything. You know, one thing that I will say, just sort of as a little background for your listeners, is that you know one of the reasons why food addiction is a is a difficult term and something that I want them to, I would encourage them to not hold to that label too tightly, is that the backdrop to this conversation is the dilemma of research in the field of nutrition in that often things will show up in a piece of research 
And research is not necessarily meant to be translated into clinical practice or, or, or life. You know, it's something that is looked at in a lab and things that are looked at in a lab tend to have a long way to go before we start applying it to people that we treat. And so because nutrition research is something that is typically very interesting and also really applicable to people in general, it's an area in which our media gets really excited about grabbing headlines. Headlines sell, headlines, you know, cause conversation um, and debate. They stir up controversy. And so a lot of times, just in general, when you're getting a piece of nutritional science that's getting pulled into the media, if you can just try to step back and understand that probably what's taking pieces, a single piece of research um, that is getting pulled by the media is maybe not being delivered in the most thoughtful way or in the way that the researchers would really intend. You know, it takes some real training um, to be able to read nutritional science research and understand the way that the data is analyzed and whether it's really fit for application um, for just the general public. So just just try to hold that in mind. I'll sort of throw that out as my disclaimer. Yeah, that's a good one. I think that's that's off. I'm really actually happy to hear you say that because so often I will read a study or I'll see a headline pop up in the media and just think, okay, there's such a huge gap between that study and real live people with emotions and with feelings and thoughts and, and cultural you know, practices with their food. And anyway, I just feel like there's such a disconnect. So that's, you're one of the first people I've heard actually kind of acknowledge that. It's almost like no one talks about that. Yeah. Yeah. No one talks about it. And it's a, it's a huge problem. In fact, I was just listening to a podcast and I can't remember specifically which podcast it was. Shoot. Um, I'll see if I can find it. Okay. But uh, for your listeners, but really they were talking about the trouble with scientific research and how challenging it is and how much training it takes to be able to understand proper design of a research study and how more complicated it becomes when you're using humans in those studies and then what the results are really meant to convey and what's meant to get translated in real life. And so... Um, often we have to exercise caution and it doesn't help when we live in a such a capitalistic economy i mean i'm grateful for capitalism but it what it does is it creates um, a society in which people get really excited about a particular idea and they can spin it into a diet that can be sold. Yeah. And doctors are often the culprit of this, is that they'll take a really compelling piece of literature and you can find research to prove anything that you want to prove. And um, they take that one piece of research and then they create an entire diet plan around it. Um, without, just as you were saying, without real thought to, I'm a real live breathing human being who has relationships and feelings and um, you know values and a lot of times those diets are detached from all of that so so that is kind of the cultural context and the social context that I think about how this whole idea of food addiction kind of sits in yeah so you know as Paige you had mentioned that I wrote a blog post on food addiction because this was an area that I was really interested in because there's a lot of crossover between the eating disorders field and um, the idea of food addiction, particularly for people who struggle with binge eating and with bulimia. And 
so I really wanted to I really wanted to do a deep dive on the research as best as I could. You know, I'm not a researcher, I'm a dietitian, so I really did my my best with this. And um really read through several studies and um and wrote an article about it and I wrote an article about it for my blog and also wrote an article about it for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics blog Stone Soup. And what I came to understand is first what is food addiction theory? Like if we say food addiction, what are we talking about? What do we mean when we say food addiction? Well, what I could gather from the research is that food addiction really refers to four similarities that are found between food and other addictive substances. So the first similarity is that food shares common drug pathways in the brain. So there are pathways in the brain where we see, um, say, alcohol operate, and you're going to see similar drug pathways for food. So we're looking about it from a, from a brain, pace, brain place perspective. All right, number two, um, the other similarity is that food can activate reward neurons. That means that when we eat something, I mean, you, you all have experienced this, everyone who's listening, you eat something and it tastes good and you feel really happy about it. You know, I know how I feel when I'm eating a piece of chocolate cake, right? It, it feels rewarding. That's why we want more of it. Um, the third thing is that when we consume food, our dopamine receptors are altered. And dopamine is our neurotransmitter that's kind of like our feel-good neurotransmitter. And the fourth thing is that um, the anticipation of eating, not just the act of eating, but thinking about eating, um, getting ready to eat, activates the same regions in the brain that we see lit up when people are abusing drugs. So people got really excited about the fact that, that food addiction or eating food from a brain-based perspective is really similar to what happens when people are abusing other substances. And can I just cut in and ask about the, the dopamine? Are you referring to downregulation that happens in addiction? Um, the dopamine receptors are altered in your number three. Does, is that what that's referring to? Is that you have downregulation with the dopamine receptors? You know what? I'm less familiar. You're definitely more of an expert than I am in terms of what happens with substance abuse. But what we see um, in people who are just eating, not necessarily ca calling themselves food addicts or they're okay. addicted to food, is that those dopamine receptors are altered. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. So we're not talking in context of, of an addiction, just someone who's, who's eating food. This is a normal person. Got it. Okay. Yep. yep. Great question. So... Um, so then we have to look at, okay, well, that's the theory. The theory is based on um, some what we see in biology, right? We see that there are these similarities between other substances which are addictive and food. So what do we make of that? Well, we have to think about the limitations. And these limitations I pulled um, from an article. And the article was written by... Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. It starts with a Z, but I'm going to provide you, Paige, with all the all the stuff so you have it, Great. so that everybody can have um, the research that I'm pulling from. And I'd inc I'd encourage you to read the research as well. Um, is that you know? And, and the amazing thing is that the authors who wrote this research article, who are really looking critically at food addiction theory, is that they're saying, um, "Hey, we are addiction researchers." They're coming at this from an addiction lens, and they want to be able to look at where does this addiction theory really make sense as, as we apply it to food, and where does it not make sense, and what do we yet know? 
And I was really struck by what these authors had to say. You know, basically they said food addiction theory is compelling. It's compelling because all of us can relate to it. You know, think about opening up a bag of Doritos. You know, like, you know the feeling of taking an Ebb Dorito and then wanting another one and another one. And it's like, okay, get this bag away from me. You know, I've eaten too many Doritos. You know, most people know what that feels like. So it's a very compelling idea. However, there's some real problems because there's no actual definition of an addictive food. We haven't defined, when we say food addiction, what is the addictive substance? It's very clear with cocaine. It's very clear with nicotine. It's very clear with alcohol. But what substance are we actually referring to when we're talking about food? The researchers actually haven't defined which specific elements are addictive. So if people say, I'm a sugar addict, well, are you talking about table sugar, like sucralose? Are you eating bags of sucralose and can't be stopped? Um, most people know they're not eating table sugar, they're eating actual food. Well, food substances are, are pretty compli complicated because they're multiple substances mixed together. So when you're consuming a cookie or you're consuming chips, you're eating a lot of different elements. Which of those elements are actually addicting? We don't know yet. That hasn't been, that hasn't been defined. So I'm going to read a quote real quick from the research article. The authors say, although arguments have been made that certain aspects of eating are addictive, we would caution against less stringent applications of an addiction model. And what they're meaning is an addiction model is based on being able to identify a singular substance that's addictive. And he's saying if we dilute it and just say, oh, there's something about this type of food that's addictive, they're saying, please don't do that. What happens is if we do that is we risk losing the explanatory power and the neurobiological grounding of the model. We've just diluted it if we just have this kind of umbrella term of food addiction without naming the specific substances. Don't do that. Got it. So don't do that because it kind of... Uh sours the ability to have that word mean something meaningful, right? Great. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, could it be, would it be a more fair thing to say is that, wow, this food is extra rewarding? <laughs> like, would that oh, be a way to kind yeah. of frame it? Like, yeah, when I eat Doritos, man, I, I really noticed that reward. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair and nuanced way to say it. Wow, you know, and and to and to I encourage my clients to speak their truth, right? Wow, once I start eating Doritos, I find it's very hard for me to stop eating Doritos after I've had a couple. And then I would want to explore with them why that is and and the context of that and what we'll get to. Um, I think at the end of, you know, kind of laying out all this definition stuff and laying out the sciences that I'd love to spend some time if we have enough time to talk about how I talk about this practical application with my clients that for someone to say, whoa, you know, this chocolate is rewarding. Absolutely, that's true. Um, and, you know, there's a reason that after a long day of work, I come home, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in, you know, I don't know, having a salad. I'm kind of looking forward to my chocolate, you know, yeah. like there are just things that are just more um, physiologically rewarding. And that's that is truth. Yeah, for sure. So we mentioned that there's no clear definition of what's actually addictive in foods, but there's there's other limitations of of this food addiction theory. Yeah. So let's let's talk through a few a few more of those. 
Yep, there are several that I think are really important. And I want to say I really thought this through after attending a training that I did with Evelyn Tribbley back in 2013. And she really helped me to begin to um, expand some of my thoughts around food addiction. So one of the things to consider is this idea of Pavlovian conditioning. So probably most of your listeners have heard about, um, you know, Pavlov's dogs, right? And the bell ringing and they start salivating or, you know, ready to eat. This idea that we can become conditioned and conditioned ourselves to have a response. So this idea that, oh, well, when I have, we'll go with the Doritos example, when I have Doritos, I eat the whole bag. That's just what happens. It's almost like you're conditioning yourself to open up that bag of Doritos and it's almost as if it's, this is inevitable. You know, it's kind of been, you know, written ahead of time. This is what I do. Um, So, you know, kind of considering it from that lens. The second one I want to mention I think is incredibly important in the and this is that food is meant to be rewarding. If you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, we are meant to have rewarding feelings and biological responses in response to eating food. If it wasn't rewarding, what would compel us to do it? Right. So it takes time away from all kinds of other things that we could be doing, right? That's a, yeah, that's a huge point. What's going to motivate people to run out and hunt animals and to plant gardens and to produce, you know, grains and agriculture? Like, you wouldn't want to do that if it wasn't rewarding. It wasn't, if we didn't have a biological um, response inside of us to say, go do that again and go do that again. You know, it's the same, we again, hold that evolutionary perspective. It's the same reason why we have all of these positive hormones when we have sex. It's an act that's meant to be rewarding to help us to be able to exist as a human species. So I really, really, really worry about this kind of pathologizing the fact that we have reward systems lit up inside of our brain in response to eating. I mean, people say that as if it's this bad, terrible thing. And I'm like, ah, it's meant to be rewarding. We're meant to have pleasure and meant to be able to enjoy our food. That way we go do it again and again and keep ourselves alive. Yeah. Love that point. I think that's huge. So the next one that is also really interesting, you know, if these the proponents of food addiction like to do brain imaging and see what's going on in the brain, and I think that there's that's so interesting, and I and I hope we get more of that research. Um, and one of the pieces of research that hasn't seemed to got, get enough attention, in my opinion, and maybe it's because it really challenges the food addiction theory, and the people who are really committed to the food addiction theory are, you know, they're really committed to it, and I think maybe not considering other reasons why you might be seeing these um, areas in the brain light up. This is really interesting. When we restrain or restrict our eating and then we give ourselves permission to eat that food, the hedonic value or meaning the sort of you know level of how gratifying that food is, is even stronger than when that food is restricted. And th- those are brain imaging studies that have been done. So it shows that if you say to yourself, no, I shouldn't be having those Doritos, no, I shouldn't be having those Oreo cookies, no, 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 and then you give in, that that food is even more gratifying. And I compare that to something that, you know, that we all can kind of, we've all probably seen if you've ever been around a toddler and they're on the floor and they're playing with their toys and they see a cell phone, and they notice that, you know, oh, 
mom doesn't want me to have that cell phone. She's pulling it away. What's the one thing that toddler wants? They don't want, you know, the 50 toys in front of them. They're going after that cell phone. You know, so our brain is just so wired towards these these forbidden things, you know, that the forbidden fruit. Yeah, and I think I think everybody can relate to that. Everybody's probably toyed with the idea of like, mm, I'm going to maybe cut back on this or I'm going to restrict this or, you know, we've all probably done that at one point or another in our life. And it's so interesting if you're, whether you're a dialysis patient and you're told that you can't eat a banana anymore, yeah. or if you're just someone who say no more sugar, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter if it's bananas or ice cream or carrots, whatever is restricted, you will want it. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. I know the moment I start to think, yeah, I should probably maybe be, you know, eating less candy or less sugar because I have a real sweet tooth. It's in that moment that I want it I know. even more. <laughs> <laughs> so we all can understand that like on a personal and practical level, but that's really cool that the research is, is showing that same, that same thing when they're looking at the actual brain. That's really cool. Oh, isn't that cool? The fourth piece that they're also showing in the brain, this is really interesting, is that when we're hungry, that increases neural activation in the brain. And again, that makes sense, right? When we're feeling hungry, there's going to be more happening in the brain that's getting us geared towards eating, getting us oriented towards eating. And that's a survival mechanism. I explain that to my clients is that, you know, they might have food on the brain and I can't, all I think about is food. Well, that's often an indicator that you're not getting enough to eat. That's a survival mechanism that's programmed inside of us. Our brains are going to prioritize that which is going to keep us alive. So if we're undernourished and we're underfed, our brain is really just going to say, food, 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 food. And so there are a lot of rational, reasonable, meant to be their explanations for a lot of um, activity happening in the brain in response to eating. And I that could be construed to be food addiction, right? Or that someone yeah. might might kind of conclude, oh, that means that I'm addicted to this. That means that's proving I'm addicted. That's proving that, you know, that because that's the same reward pathway as cocaine, that that's showing, you know, that I'm also an addict. And I think that that's a big, big leap that addiction researchers aren't yet making. And, um, you know, in fact, the authors of one of these studies I looked at is that they said, you know, this idea of food addiction being a primary driver in the obesity epidemic, these are their words, has, a, has acquired much currency with relatively little supporting it. And I think that that's a really important phrase that we have to point to to say, hey, there may be pieces of this that really do correlate with an addiction model because all of us have sort of subjectively experienced feeling like we're eating something and maybe ate more than what we wished we had. Um, but to jump to food addiction, that's a big jump to make. We just sort of went from A to Z. And let's, let's think about what research still needs to be done, what corners still need to be investigated, you know, what rocks need to be uh, you know, overturned um, before we jump to the conclusion that, yes, this is a thing. Um, you know, a lot of the research that's actually been done in humans has um, completely and totally mixed reviews. And the majority of the research on food addiction has not been done on humans. It's been done on mice. And the research that's been done on mice 
has also had mixed reviews. So I would propose to say this is an interesting idea. We're seeing a lot of important stuff happening in the brain. Let's better understand it and let's really cover all of our bases and not jump to conclusions and sort of treat it as fact. Um, you know, I, I have offered my criticism in the past to um, the Yale Food Addiction Scale. It's really kind of considered to be um, the gold standard for assessing food addiction and it's used in a lot of the research. I have a big problem with that because the food addiction scale doesn't actually account for the fact for past dieting and past restriction. And we know that dieting and restriction upregulates that neurobiological response in the brain to food and forbidden food. And so perhaps it's not that you're addicted, it's that the brain is so compelled to make sure it's not starved that it has these other evolutionary built-in mechanisms to protect us. And to call it a food addiction I think is troublesome because the idea is if this response is happening to food restriction, a food addiction model, the frame or the treatment is going to be to cut that food out of your life. And I would say we're we're actually then creating the quote unquote addiction and I would have some I would have some alternative solutions to offer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and and not to mention what you've already talked about with increasing the hedonic value of the food just perpetuating those those very issues that they're trying to kind of work on which is so interesting um one more thing that that we want to talk about is just the fact that i mean we i've heard in kind of everyday conversations i've heard people say well how could you be addicted to food because it's something you absolutely have to do and that's what's so much harder about you know quitting smoking versus working on improving your eating. You know, a lot of people just say, well, you have to eat. And so that's another kind of limitation, wouldn't you say, that just you've got to do it? Yes, it's distinctly different. We cannot compare across the board. These are, these are totally different things. And having worked with clients who are in recovery from substance addiction and who are also working on learning how to eat in a way that's balanced and healthy, um, is that they will talk about how it is so totally different that the way that they approach their recovery around food is, of course, there are s- some similarities, but there is a lot that is different in terms of how they approach their recovery from substances. You know, you can treat it in much more of a black and white because none of us need cocaine to get through our day. And all of us make multiple choices around food every single day right? and have to feed ourselves multiple times a day. It's incredibly problematic and there's a lot of um, just complicating factors that is just very different from um, the substance abuse world. Right. So with, with the substance abuse world, the model is very much you know, you're either sober or you're not, right? And and I always tell my my great uh, people that I work with at my addiction recovery center, um, I always tell them that, you know, food is not black and white. Food is all kinds of colors. It's, it's the whole gamut. And you're forced to figure out your issues with food because you absolutely have to eat. Whereas, you know, sometimes with an addiction, you might say, oh, I can just avoid it, which, you know, we all know that doesn't really work. You have to work through your issues there, too. But it's not just like a white knuckling it through it like it can be in kind of those early days of 
um, mm-hmm. recovery from a substance. So mm-hmm. I think, I think that's just kind of an interesting distinction where you're sort of forced to live in that, in that nuance. Um, but one thing that's, that's kind of an interesting topic of conversation is the idea that, um, people who are addicted or who have struggled with addiction in the past with alcohol or drugs, um, a lot of times what we'll see is then that, that obsession with, with that substance kind of moves into this obsession with food, whether, and sometimes it can take the form of healthy eating, you know, and sometimes it's like, oh, I've done all these terrible things to my body for so many years. I need to make up for it through eating perfectly. And other times it looks like, okay, um, I really, really, really want to drink right now. And so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to eat and I'm going to eat and I'm going to eat. And so I think that's another kind of aspect of this food addiction theory that, that really comes into play is in my experience, a lot of people who struggle with addiction to drugs or alcohol have also had food issues prior to their addiction. And, and often those, those get so messy and correlated and it's easy to kind of throw out that word of, of um, addiction because it kind of feels similar as you know the food or the candy can give them that similar reward that kind of calms them down when they're really craving a substance so that's an interesting dynamic there yes it's a and it's really it's really challenging really 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 challenging and you know the reality is that food is so effective because it does cause biochemical changes in the body. You know that when we eat carbohydrates, that increases our serotonin. Having more serotonin in our system improves our mood. You know, that's just true. So it makes all the sense in the world to me that someone who has a history of substance abuse also has challenges around food. And a lot of that has to do with a host of complicated things going on in the body um, as it relates to their own body's biochemistry and the levels of neurotransmitters that they have in their system. And using substances, um, whether it's drugs or alcohol, helps to make up for the fact that they may have excesses or deficits in some of their neurotransmitters. And using a substance helps to self-regulate that. And, you know, what's a less harmful but, you know, problematic, you know, substitute that is, you know, not taboo in the same way that drugs and alcohol are and uh, affordable, you know, it's and it's right around the corner and, you know, nobody's going to be giving you a dirty look when you go get your bag of Cheetos probably, um, that it is just so accessible. And because we do need it on a day-to-day basis, you know, it's just right at your fingertips. And how challenging. And so one of the things that I think a lot about with my clients is, what are other things that help to improve your mood and regulate your internal state um, without using something that's going to be harmful? You know, for some people, that is being on medication. For some people, that's um, exercise. For other people, that's human connection. For other people, you know, it's hugs. For other people, it's laughter. For, you know, for other people, it's doing something more thrilling like going skydiving. Um, that you kind of have to find your mix of stuff to work with um, the challenges that are inherent to your unique makeup. Yeah. That's that's awesome. So I have a question for you, and I think this is something that people might be thinking at this point. So what's what's the harm 
in calling it a food addiction? I mean, I think we've alluded to it, but let's just kind of say it outright. Like, why why not? What's, what's yeah. the big deal? Well, you know, where I go with this with my clients is that I really let them decide what works for them. And so if someone said to me, Marcy, it is empowering for me to think of myself as a food addict, I would say, tell me more about that. I want you to feel empowered. I want to understand that. Tell me about that. And to me, the label matters as far as it dictates, well, then what do we do next? Because typically the food addiction model is I am an addict, I am addicted to, you know, this food or this type of food. And my way to manage it is to be sober with that food, right? I'm going to not consume that food. That for the rest of my life, I will have no white flour. I will have no white sugar. I will not eat, you know, X, Y, and Z. And if a person was to say to me, Marcy, this is what I've been doing for 10 years. I'm happier than I've ever been before. I am healthy. I am clear-headed. This is working for me. I would say good for you. That is your life. I, have, I don't have a problem with it. The trouble is I personally um, have met one person <laughs> who that has been the case for over, over a period of years. What I, what I have seen um, numerous times in my practice is that a person will say, I am a food addict. I'm going to abstain from those foods. And they do for a period of time. And then somehow the food's back in their life and they're binging on it. They're eating it in an out-of-control way, right? The narrative in their mind is, I'm an addict with this food. I can't be trusted with it. So I really get interested in, well, what does this word mean to you? For many of my clients, the idea of being a food addict means they have no power. Right. That's often the language in the substance abuse food, right? I, I am powerless. And I think to think of oneself in relationship to food as if, um, you know, I am powerless to this food, I am addicted to it, therefore when I consume it, I will consume it and not be able to stop. I will not be able to restrain, I will, you know, eat the whole bag until it is gone. Um, is, is it, in my opinion, for most people, a problematic attitude? And what we do know from the research that in terms of food being a true chemical addiction, is actually very, very, very rare. And that most people are quote unquote addicted to the process of getting the food, thinking about the food, anticipating it, planning it out, eating a large amount of the food, feeling good, dissociating from their feelings, and then afterwards feeling crappy and then you know starting it all over again. And what's so interesting about that, if I might cut in, sorry, um, the people in my drug and alcohol rehab classes have told me that that's how they feel about their drug addiction as well is often like, cause we'll, we'll kind of separate like process addiction from substance addiction. And a lot of people will raise their hand and say, I almost think that the, the process of thinking about using going and getting it, the thrill of kind of it being you know, a bad thing to do or it's, you know, whatever. This this whole process to them is almost what gives them the most thrill and makes them the most addicted. And and so I, I think that that's really interesting to kind of tie that in with the food. It is, is that that process and that thinking about it and that thrill in, in that way can also, also be kind of something that people get a thrill from. 
Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I think it's so, so true. And it was kind of like we were talking about earlier, right? Just sort of the very thought of anticipating eating something. It's like, ooh, that makes me excited. That that kind of, you know, revs me up. And so, you know, the, the idea of a food addiction, you know, for, for the people who are listening, I would say what matters is what connotation does that word addiction have for you? And is it an empowering word and what's what then do we do with that word what then when we say i'm a food addict or i'm not a food addict i just have trouble with the, these certain types of food is then how do we work around it one way to work around it from a food addiction model is to say i'm done i'm never eating that food again um a model that i use um is is very very differently and that we would consider all of the complicated factors related to you and eating that food and to help you to develop a skill around managing that food. To me, I can think about eating as a skill that can be developed. And I like to think of it as a skill because skills are always, there are things that we can get better at. You can develop a skill, you can strengthen a skill, you can hone a skill. And so I'm all about helping my clients to feel more skillful and capable and empowered um, rather than just sort of, you know, blanket statement, nope, this is out of my life. Right. And so I think, I think that the fundamental thing that I, I totally agree with you so that you and I are trying to say here is asking yourself truly, truly in your heart, is calling it a food addiction helping me or is it harming me? Like, what is it, what is it doing? Is it helping me to feel empowered and capable and, and in control and strong or is it making me feel powerless and like I'm a victim and like there's nothing I can do to change it and so we can talk all we want about you know the research and global labels of, of this term but I think what it comes down to is in each individual what's useful for you and I'm with you it's like whatever works for you I'm happy but I'm also here to kind of point out when these words that we just throw around might not be truly helping you and might actually be making this cycle worse and worse. Yep. I think you've, I think you've summed it up really, really well. And you know what I would say my, my personal belief, and I appreciate that those who have found healing and peace from thinking of it as an addiction and sort of eliminating things permanently from their life is that I kind of think of that as like a partial recovery. It's that you've done some really great work and and I and I believe that we could help you go a little bit further to learn how to develop the skills to integrate this food into your life. And if you decide you don't want to do that, okay, all right, you know that's that's on that's your life. I respect that. You you are your own expert. You know you far better than I know you. Um, but I've really been amazed at you know through the years of working clinically, um, the work that I've been able to do with people who have really believed that they were a food addict and then have said to me, I never would have dreamt that I would have been able to be around food in this way. I really never ever believed that this was possible for me. I really just believed that I was hopeless, that I was an addict, that I was messed up. Um, you know, this is something I never could have envisioned for myself. Yeah. And you know, so you, you've come across a lot of people kind of falling into that frame of mind where they say, okay, I can't be trusted around this. I have to eliminate it completely. And I've seen that a little bit in my practice, but, but what's interesting is most people who come to me and say, I'm a food addict. It's just this frantic state where it's like, 
I have these struggles. I don't really know what to call it. I'm not necessarily doing anything about it. I just feel out of control. And that's kind of their way of trying to communicate that. Just help, help me. (laughs) So, so I don't think everybody who's feeling like they're in a food addiction is going towards that proactive step of eliminating. I think a lot of people just feel powerless, right? I mean, and, and so there's maybe, you know, people all across the spectrum there, but I, I think it's, it's interesting to kind of yeah. think about how people internalize that message and what they do about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And that's a great point. I've certainly had that similarly where, where I've come, you know, into contact with a client and maybe historically they've been all over the map, you know, where they've had, been out of control. Maybe they've restrained and eliminated things, you know, maybe they've, um, you know, tried to give themselves permission, but then still felt out of control. So yeah, people, everybody comes with their own unique story for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about kind of like practically what can we do, what can we do to help the people listening who might be feeling like a loved one they know or they themselves are in this trap where they've called it a food addiction, but maybe now they're trying to kind of reframe that. And and you've talked already before about kind of helping to, to hone in these skills, these eating skills, but are there any, are there any kind of practical things that someone might want to think about or work on? Yes. Yeah. I'll happy to share some of that. Um, And, you know, it's a little bit hard to summarize for you guys, um, you know, in a few minutes what I spend, you know, sometimes months and years working on with clients. (laughs) I'm going to give you what I can, but please keep in mind that this takes time and it often takes support. You know, it often takes the help of a trusted professional who's trained and, and, you know, has a good idea of what they're doing. Um, But a couple little tidbits for you to keep in mind. The first thing that I would just offer up is that the number one thing that I'm looking for when I'm meeting with someone is if they're feeling like a food addict, they're feeling out of control, what I'm trying to decide is on a day-to-day basis, are they eating enough? Are they baseline getting their nutritional needs met? Are they getting enough fat, protein, carbohydrate, and calories? And is that food satisfying to them? Because if you are attempting to restrict your intake, maybe you're wanting to lose weight and you're actually not eating enough, what that triggers on is what I call primal hunger. I experience primal hunger when I've gone way too long without eating and I show up to a restaurant or I get home and it's dinner time and I don't care what I eat. I just want to eat it and I want to eat all of it because I am starving. Yes, that that happens to me too. (laughs) Yes, that is going to create a way of eating that feels maybe addictive because it feels out of control because you're just so hungry. The body is so determined to keep us alive. It's going to do everything it can to keep us alive. So those drives to get enough to eat are stronger than our willpower and are stronger than our our ideas of what we should and should not do. So you just have to make sure baseline your nutritional needs are getting met. That's the number one because starting trying to work on this other stuff with an inadequate intake, you're going to be trying to battle against that primal hunger and you can't do it because it's going to win out. Every time it's going to win out. The second thing that I would um, encourage the listeners to do is make a line across the top of a piece of paper and on the left side, Make a list of foods that maybe they're their like green light foods, the foods that they have no problem eating. They feel like it's, it's not an issue. They can eat it without worry. It doesn't create stress and anxiety. And then on the other end of the extreme, like the red light foods are the foods that they feel as if every time I eat these foods, I'm out of control. 
I'm binging, I'm afraid of those foods. Um, and then they can make any sort of variation between either extreme and really getting a handle on which foods do they feel okay with, which foods do they feel comfortable eating, and which foods feel more challenging. Um, and then one of the things that I would encourage clients to do, um, and I do this a lot with my clients, is to start to do some intentional experimentation with single foods. Um, so maybe a, a challenge food might be brownies or something. And sometimes I'll encourage people to start with something that's kind of middle of the road, like it's challenging but not super challenging. Um, so maybe not the most challenging food. And to think about, okay, when I have this food, what are all of the things that make me vulnerable to overeating or binging on it? And try to be as comprehensive as you can. I want you to think about portion size. I want you to think about mood and emotion. I want you to think about the people that you eat with, where you're eating that food, um, time of day, the ideas and beliefs that you have about that food. Um, I'm trying to give other examples. You're just wanting to cover every one of your bases. What is going to make me vulnerable to overdoing it on this food? So I'll give you a, I'll give you a brownie example. I had a client she was really working on giving herself permission to have um, dessert once a day. And she was really wanting to have a, a sort of reasonable portion of that dessert and, and not overdo it. So, um, you know, she had baked a pan of brownies and the plan was that she was going to come home after a family visit to come home and have a, a piece of brownie. And she came home. She had gone with her husband to her in-law's house. And, um, you know, they did their visit and they came back. And she ended up eating about, I think it was like two-thirds the pan of brownies or something. And she was so frustrated with herself and she was so disappointed. And I said, well, let's go through your vulnerability factors. And she said, okay. So we went through it. And what she essentially identified were her primary vulnerability factors was seeing her mother-in-law. That she has a really difficult relationship with her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law is very devaluing and critical of her. And so she came home feeling criticized feeling worthless, feeling very low in her mood, and that was enough to make her vulnerable and to overeat on those brownies because it was also a Sunday night. And she gets the real Sunday night blues because at the time we were working together, she had a very stressful job and she was kind of butting heads with her boss. And so to go to work on Monday morning was always stressful. So she had a couple of vulnerability factors going on there. And she also had, if you guys will notice in the story, she didn't have a single brownie at home. She had an entire pan of brownies. So what I invited her to think about is, I'm able to eat a portion of brownies successfully when, fill in the blank. You know, I'm not overly stressed. I'm not feeling devalued. And I have a single portion option at home rather than an entire pan of brownies. And the idea is that as you develop exposure to these foods, permission to have these foods, a baseline of good balanced nutrition that you can then practice eating things that have a history of being charged for you. But you know, if I come home after work and I am starving and I've had a really stressful day at work and I'm exhausted and there's a 10 pound bag of M&Ms in my cupboard, if I start eating those M&Ms before I have dinner, the likelihood of eating more M&Ms than I'd like to, pretty high. I don't think of myself as a food addict, but it's pretty darn easy to, you know, overeat on those M&Ms. So that's a simplified example. But point being is let's try to minimize 
all of those things that make you vulnerable to overdoing it and give you an opportunity to have an experience with those food, foods where those vulnerability factors are reduced to as low as possible so you can have a successful experience. So if she had maybe in the afternoon, you know, before going to the in-laws with her husband, gone out for a walk and decided to go to a place where they sell, you know, brownies or something like that and had a serving of it together and then walked back home, um, that would have been a really different experience. My guess is that in that moment, she would have been able to say that went well. Um, rather than feeling as if she came home and ate nearly the whole pan and felt like a food addict. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think I think one of the big parts of that to me and in, in my experience is when someone has a positive experience with a previously problematic food for them, it's it makes the next time a little bit easier. And it makes the time after that even easier because you start to develop confidence in yourself where you're like, yeah, that's been an issue, but last time... I was able to work through it. And and so I think sometimes like the first time you try to work through that problematic food or whatever can be really tricky and really scary and, and really hard. And I like the advice to just think about what makes you vulnerable and try to reduce that as much as possible. But then to recognize the next time it's going to be a little bit easier. It's going to be a little bit easier and it's okay to practice kind of at that level of where you're at, that level of difficulty, right? If we think of it as a skill, you know, if you're learning to ride a bike, okay, start on the tricycle, um, then stay on the tricycle a while. You know, I had a client who her favorite food was ice cream, but oh my gosh, she just felt totally out of control with ice cream. So it was a long time that she would have the single serve small ice cream cups in her freezer. And she would have one after dinner every night. And she did that for, I think, probably a year and a half before she decided she wanted to say, well, what would it be like to sort of up up the challenge? That she just felt so good that she was able to have ice cream in a regular way. And when you have those positive experiences like what you were saying, the reason why over time it becomes easier is that those foods begin to lose a charge. It's that that extra light up that we talked about in those brain scans, that that light or that charge it's a little bit smaller and it gets a little bit smaller and that food becomes more neutral and as food becomes more neutral it's not just this you know this thing that has all this power and I'm so afraid of it it's just kind of become more neutral then we can decide with a much more ease that's connected to our physical needs rather than being drawn into the vortex of what's going on emotionally and it's kind of like oh you know it's it's always that shock when a client says oh my gosh for the first time I was like I realized I wasn't in the mood for ice cream and I had always thought I will always want ice cream. I'm always in the mood for ice cream. They realize that they have a moment where they're like, oh, you know what? Nah, ice cream doesn't sound so good right now. You know, yeah. the, the food lost that charge. Definitely. And that, that idea you're talking about in the brain is called neuroplasticity, where your brain has the ability to trim off old pathways that it doesn't need anymore and to develop new pathways and new behaviors and so you you give it less charge not only kind of with the food in and of itself but also like in the brain there's there's less of that strong worn in pathway in there as you as you create new new ways of doing things and new ways of thinking about things mm -hmm. so yeah. i love that idea that our brains are are um resilient oh my gosh it's the most promising research that we have right that we are able to um, 
kind of reshape these neural pathways and to be able to make change, you know, that we aren't just, it's not written in stone, you know, it's, and it's so cool. And why I love doing this work with my clients, it's so rewarding. You know, I'll never forget, I had this client and she would, you know, say to me, you know, Marcy, when I eat sugar, it literally is how I feel when I'm, when I get high, when I smoke pot, she was, it literally takes me to the moon. Like I feel so good. And we've worked together now for a number of years. And, um, she absolutely has some vulnerabilities to substance abuse. She has a trauma history. She had years of an eating disorder. And you know what? She's doing really well now. And she said, it's amazing for me that, you know, when I have a cookie, it's just a cookie. Before, the cookie was just like everything. And it just, I, from head to toe, I would just, you know, have all of these physical sensations. And, you know, that was real for her. And, you know, we might have called that an addiction, a food addiction. And, you know what? She doesn't eliminate foods. She's thoughtful about what she brings into her home. She's thoughtful about when she has what. She's really careful about, you know, if I'm going to be having a glass of wine, you know, then I'm going to be really careful about sort of the food that I have around. It's not as if she just has all of this food around and all this alcohol and she just does as she pleases. No, she's developed the skill to be able to navigate that food. You know, I think that we have to be wise enough to know that, of course, food creates those physiological changes inside of us and that is going to make you vulnerable. So you have to be really um, thoughtful and intentional about how you integrate certain foods into your life. But that is very, very different than saying, I'm an addict and I can never have those foods again. Oh, yes. Oh, I love these practical tips and these stories. It's so helpful to hear this. Um, what Are there any other ones that just pop up into your mind of, of practical ways for people to work on food addiction, so, so-called food addiction? You know what? I would just, I would really encourage you to utilize help in the context of a partner or a spouse or a trusted friend to do some of these experiments with and to really assess yourself and determine when will I feel the most supported. Um, so, you know, I had um, a client who she really wanted to work on Nutella because it was one of her favorite foods, but when she bought it, she would end up eating the whole jar in one sitting. And so we worked for on Nutella for months and I kept the jar of Nutella in my office and so when she would come to see me we would do a Nutella exposure but she was like I'm not yet ready to buy it to have it in my house well fast forward a year later she's now able to have Nutella in her house but it took her that year of consistent exposure you might not have a dietitian you're working with who can hold that jar of Nutella for you um, but do you have someone in your life who you would feel comfortable talking about this with and really thinking creatively, how can I have exposure to this food, do it in a safe, supportive way, and not make myself unnecessarily vulnerable as I work on developing the skills and getting used to having this food as a part of my life? So really, I mean, I, we come up with so many creative ideas. You know, I was working with a client on, you know, a Chipotle burrito, and, um, you know, she loved a Chipotle burrito, but when she ate the whole thing, she was really over full. It was really too much for her in one sitting. And so what we decided together is that she'd get the Chipotle burrito, she'd cut off one third, and she'd immediately throw it into the trash. Now, that sounds weird. You know, maybe it sounds sort of like a bizarre thing. But for her, that helped her to feel confident that she was going to be able to eat 
and and not overdo it. That was step one. The next step was to cut off one third and leave it on her plate and then decide if she wanted more. And then the next step was to eat to about a one third mark on the burrito and then put it down and then take a break. You know, so we do all of these things stepwise and, you know, don't hesitate to, you know, to use the powers of your your creativity and um, to really get to know yourself and do an inventory and to think about what do I need? It's not that I'm powerless. Where is my power and how do I use it and what's going to work to my advantage? Yeah, that is so cool. I love those examples you gave. Those are really, I bet, things that lots of people can relate to and lots of people can try. Um, Well, great. So are there any other loose ends that you feel like we need to tie together? I mean, we've talked about food addiction theory and kind of where it makes sense to maybe define that term. You know, you can see why people maybe come up with that term and then where it falls short. And then we've also talked about um, ideas in terms of like the research and what the research is is showing um, in our brains and what really makes these addictive so-called addictive processes more and more intense in our brain and a lot of times it's it comes down to restriction and dieting which which we talk about a lot on this podcast the the dangers of those and then we also just really tried to sum up um, our conversation about food addiction in terms of asking yourself if it's a helpful or harmful label and then we provided some practical tips. So is there anything you feel along those lines that we've missed or you'd like to fill in some blanks or do you think we've done a fairly good job there? I think we've done a great job in, in covering it. And the only thing that I would say, you know, as we wrap up to each of the listeners is to be compassionate with yourself. And that doesn't mean that you don't hold yourself accountable and that you don't, you know, give your work your all, but the food stuff is incredibly complicated. It's incredibly complicated from a biological perspective, from a social perspective, uh, from an emotional perspective, from a spiritual perspective. This is really incredible stuff and often people will just give themselves such a hard time. Why can't I keep it together? Why aren't I able to do this? You know, why is it that I have such a hard time? And they just rag on themselves and say, listen, you are not alone. Many, many people have challenges in managing their food. We live in a really challenging food environment. And, you know, try to be really gentle and compassionate with yourself as you're also trying to do the good work of really evaluating what you need and how to take good care of yourself. And um, I wish all of you the best of luck on your, uh, on your food journey. Well said. I love that. That ending with the idea of compassion is really important because we're all, like you said, on a journey. So that's lovely. I love that. Marcy, thank you so much for giving us your time today and for sharing all of this great information with us. Um, just to reiterate how people can get in touch with you or how people can follow you, uh, just basically marcyrd.com and then they can find you on Twitter and Facebook as yep. well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's been a pleasure to be here. And I've had a lot of fun and I love talking about this stuff and would love to connect with any and all of you on social media. So um, you should be able to find me on my, on my website or at you know, Twitter and Facebook and it's M-A-R-C-I-R-D. Great. Well, thank you, Marcy. Yeah, thank you. 
Well, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't already, please go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you soon for another episode.